Bible reading this evening is found in the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4, and that can be found on page 1187 in the Bibles in front of you. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4. Living to please God. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you on how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. And now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject, reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. everyone. Uh, I'm Tim. I'm one of the elders um, of the church. Um, you are all really welcome here this evening. Um, if you haven't heard or watched um, the, the videos of, of the, the earlier talks in the series, I would really, really encourage you to do that. These are really important topics to, to be engaging with because God, God cares about every aspect of our lives. And I'm just going now to pray for Jonathan um, and for us as he comes to, comes to speak. Oh, dear Father, thank you that you are a God who loves us. Lord, you loved us so much that you sent your son to die for us, to rescue us. Lord, thank you that you are a God who will convict but will never condemn Thank you that you are a God who accepts us as we are, but wants to then transform us, who wants to be making us more and more each day in the, li in, in the likeness of your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, I, I pray for Jonathan as he speaks, that he will have words which come with the power of your Holy Spirit. I thank you for all the preparation that he has done. Lord, I, I pray that, that he will be clear in what he has to say. And I pray that each of us will have hearts that are attentive, hearts that are listening, hearts that are being transformed by the power of your spirit tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Tim. Good evening, everyone. Thank you. Um, you know you're dealing with a weighty subject, don't you, when you have an elder coming up to pray with you before the service. But I really do appreciate that, actually, because it is indeed a weighty topic. 
So why does God care about my sex life? As burning questions go, they really don't come much hotter, do they? Especially in a me-focused culture where we're bombarded with messages like, be true to yourself. If it feels good, doesn't hurt anyone, just go for it. But the question makes some assumptions. At first, it assumes there is a God. Secondly, it assumes I have a sex life. And thirdly, it assumes that if there is a God and I do have a sex life, he cares about it. I'm not going to tackle those first two assumptions tonight. As you're in church, I'll assume that you believe in God or at least open to being persuaded about his existence. And for those who don't currently have a sex life, I think the question is still relevant. Because we live in a world, don't we, that is generally obsessed with sex. And many who are not Christians find the orthodox Christian view on sex and marriage outdated, irrelevant, anti-LGBTQ, even damaging to human flourishing and mental well-being. But I want to step back from our question for a few minutes to tackle the third assumption. Let's remove the why and ask, does God care about my sex life? Does he care about how many sexual partners I have? Does he care whether I describe myself as straight, gay, bisexual, asexual, demisexual, pansexual, polyamorous, sexually fluid, or any of a whole other multitude of ways? Does he care if I watch pornography or use dating apps for casual hookups or if I have sex before marriage? Does he care if I go through the whole of life without a single sexual partner? Well, the simple answer from the Bible is a clear yes, God does care. He cares deeply, and I can be sure that he cares because he sent his only son, Jesus, from heaven to earth in order to redeem me. That is all of me, spirit, soul, and body, including my sex life. To redeem someone is to rescue them by payment of a ransom, as you would in a hostage situation. But I also want to answer the does God care question by sharing a little of my own story of Jesus redeeming me and my sex life, I'm grateful to be given a little bit of extra time this evening to do that. Uh, I had my first sexual experience around about age 10 with another boy at boarding school. Age 11, I narrowly escaped being abused by one of my teachers. By age 13, I was addicted to pornography. Age 15, I was dating girls but having secret crushes on boys. At 16, I set out on a quest to find love, which eventually led to me, age 17, meeting a Swiss boy in a nightclub in Geneva. It was love at first sight, and we began a loving and committed relationship, which lasted for some seven years. But that side to my life was mostly unseen and secretive. Running in parallel to it was the side that my parents, relatives, and most of my friends would see. As a young boy, I went to an Anglican church and attended Sunday school weekly. I sang soprano in a cathedral school choir from around about the age of eight, touring cathedrals around the country. Uh, one of my aunts describing me as angelic. The irony of it. I was confirmed in Oxford Cathedral, age 12, receiving a beautiful children's Bible as a confirmation gift. Age 15, I was invited to attend a Baptist church with a friend from school and, quote, made a commitment to Jesus. I'd always believed in the existence of God, and amazingly, I can't think of a single moment in my life where I've ever doubted his existence. I think that's quite unusual. But as you might imagine, there was always huge conflict in my mind, especially after that first sexual experience at boarding school. That said, although I was convinced that God was not pleased with the way my sex life was developing, I never thought he hated me, more that he was patiently pursuing me with love and compassion and with a much better plan in mind for my life. So I got heavily involved in that Baptist church for a while, 
But as confusion over my sexuality grew, I didn't feel I could discuss it with anyone and began to drift away before finally abandoning church altogether after moving in with my partner. Uh, there were several events, life events, that shook me or, or shocked me. Things that as I look back, I can see that God used to bring me to my senses. I remember accidentally driving over a cliff on a moped in Greece, age 16, convinced I was about to die, but escaping with a grazed leg. I wrote off my dad's car on the day I passed my driving test with my German, yeah, I know, not a great thing to do, with my German uh, pen pal and his brother as passengers. But again, we all escaped unharmed, not the car, sadly. And the greatest shock of all was my dad dying unexpectedly, aged just 44. And I still have this vivid memory of reading the Bible to my tearful mum. She came and sat on my bed at night, uh, trying to comfort her with my own conflicted and very confused faith. Well, to cut a long story short, I ended up living in Bournemouth with my same-sex partner in a flat overlooking the entrance to Lansdowne Baptist Church. Age 24, I had a great job, a loving, secure relationship, enjoyed foreign holidays, theater trips, meals out. In, in some ways, I felt I had it all. But God was always at work, reminding me of his existence, unsettling me, convicting me, and then eventually bringing me to quite a scary place where I thought, if I die, I won't be in heaven. Not only because of my sex life, but because by then my whole life was focused on me, my relationship, my ambition, my goals, my pleasure, my money. I knew I wasn't free. I was a slave to sin, a complete mess, and I needed redeeming. I remember one Sunday sitting in the bay window of our flat uh, overlooking Lansdowne, and around about lunchtime seeing hundreds of people flood out of the church, smiling and laughing. I tried to convince myself they were happy because their long, boring church service was finally over. But really, I was quite envious. Another sin to add to the list. Envious because they had something that I lacked. Joy, contentment, peace. I could see it in their faces. So Christians, remember to smile as you leave the building tonight. You never know who might be watching. But no fake grins, please. People won't buy that. The following Sunday, I turned up at Lansdowne for their morning service. Can't tell you a lot about it except that there was a tangible sense of the presence of God as I sat in that church service. And I felt an indescribable peace that I'd never known before, just being in the church building. Then, over coffee, the Minister for Pastoral Care, known as Dr. John, came up and started chatting. He was so friendly, so warm, so kind. You look like you could do with a proper chat, he said. Why not come and see me here at the church next week? So I did. On the 15th of May, 1992, aged 24, I sat in his office. And before I said anything, he asked if he could read something to me from the Bible. And I said, sure, go for it. And so he read these very well-known verses from what I later learned was Jeremiah chapter 29. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. Now that is what the preacher Charles Spurgeon used to call letting the line of God's word out of the cage to do its work. And those words were like a sword into my heart. Tears streamed down my face and I immediately knew that that was God's call to finally abandon my idols. And the first idol was my same-sex partner and I knew that I had to leave him. I still loved him but a much greater love from and for Jesus had just filled my heart. 
I put my trust in Jesus for forgiveness of sins and began to devote my life to following him. I'd known the gospel for years, but had been running from God and pursuing satisfaction elsewhere. Now was the time to seek him with all my heart, with that great promise of release from captivity. Well, that was over 31 years ago. And the story of the last 31 years is one of God's amazing grace, mercy, forgiveness, compassion overflowing to me. And him step by step releasing me from captivity to sin, teaching me and equipping me to live in freedom and enabling me to do good works that he's prepared in advance for me to do. As Jesus says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And that's certainly been my experience since coming to faith. Now, those of you who don't know me well might be thinking, well, he's now going to talk about his wife, his four children, his 16 grandchildren, his mortgage, his MPV, and his dog. Uh, no, I don't have any of those. I do dream one day of owning a husky dog, although uh, living in a 12th floor flat, I think my best hope is probably God giving me one of those to care for in heaven. Assuming, of course, there are huskies in heaven. Please don't. I can see some of you tapping on your phones. Please don't ask me that one. <laughs> the masturbation question I have to tackle tonight is tough enough. I did have a, a close friendship with a, a Swiss Christian girl uh, for a while. Uh, by the way, I don't know what it is with me and Swiss people. Um, <laughs> but they, they do make very good chocolate. Um, I met her while I was vol volunteering with Friends International in Bournemouth. And uh, we wondered over time whether that might lead to marriage. But by my late 20s, it became really clear that actually I could best serve God as a single man concerned about the Lord's affairs, as Paul puts it over in 1 Corinthians 7 not having to worry about how to please a spouse, which some of my married friends tell me can be quite tricky at times. I couldn't possibly comment. Uh, as it happens, the Swiss girl in question is now married, and in the lovely providence of God, uh, her and her husband are among my closest of friends. We spent a number of holidays together uh, with another one planned this coming June. Isn't it amazing how God can work uh, out his purposes in surprising ways? So there you have it, a heavily condensed version of God redeeming me and my sex life three decades ago. He's been patiently teaching me ever since how to live a fulfilling and purposeful life without a sexual relationship. I've often been a slow learner, but times of failure and weakness have served to make me better appreciate God's patience and mercy and his unfailing love that relentlessly pursues and will not let go his wandering sheep. I love that verse in Isaiah that, that says, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. It speaks of the tenderness of God towards his struggling people. And I can certainly relate to Paul's testimony in 1 Timothy 1 verse 16. He says, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. amen. Don't get too excited by the amen. That's not the end of the message. That's just the end of the testimony. If you'd like to know more um, about my own story, please uh, chat with me. I'm, I'm a very uh, open person. And uh, wherever I feel it's helpful to share, I'm always willing to do so. Well, you can read more in a book uh, called Satisfaction Guaranteed, A Future and a Hope for Same-Sex Attracted Christians, uh, which I think uh, is still available on the bookstore. Uh, having spent the first 24 years of my life leading a double life, I'm now determined to share my life where I think it might be helpful, and with God's help to live with complete openness, honesty, and integrity. And I want to encourage you tonight, brothers and sisters, it is so liberating 
to live with openness, honesty, and integrity. That is what church ought to be like, accepting one another as Christ accepted us. It doesn't mean you have to share everything with everyone in a public way. But if I could go back and give some advice to my teenage self, I would say, try to find two or three people, if you can, that you can be completely real with. Especially if you're struggling tonight with your sexuality, you're struggling with pornography, apps, or whatever it may be. Because Satan loves secrets and darkness. It's one of his most effective tools to keep us enslaved to sin. And being truthful and bringing things out into the light, that is the path to freedom. The freedom that Jesus paid for with his life on the cross. Well, that's the pre-question. Now to the question itself. Why does God care about my sex life? What's the big deal? Why shouldn't I just be true to myself? Do whatever feels right, as long as I don't harm anyone. Well, there are many answers, but I want to focus on the central one uh, in the passage that was read for us. So if you just have that passage open, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 to 8. Let me just read verses 3 to 8 again. I think it's such an important passage, and it's good to hear God's word again. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Why does God care about my sex life? Because it is God's will that I should be sanctified. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is God's will for your life. It's not the entirety of his will for our lives, of course, but it is nothing less than his will. And if you're tempted to think, well, isn't this just Paul who was a bit uptight and harsh on matters of sex? Well, notice back in verse 2, Paul gives these instructions by the authority of the Lord Jesus. So it's as if Jesus himself is writing to us. And verse 8, therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. And if you're not yet a Christian, maybe you're interested and you're wanting to find out more, but you recognize you're not yet a believer. Well, firstly, can I say, however you choose to describe your sexuality, it is great that you're here. It's great that you're listening to the Bible being taught, because that's primarily how God speaks and makes himself known to us. But secondly, you need to know, if you were to become a Christian, this would be God's will for your life too. There is a cost to be considered. Jesus urges us to count the cost before committing to following him. Now, sanctified is one of those Christian words we may have heard quite a lot in church or read in the Bible, but we're never quite sure what it means. And I imagine the word will impact some of us negatively because we hear the word sanctified and we might associate it with another word, sanctimonious. Sadly, Christians often have a reputation for being sanctimonious, coming across as morally superior, self-righteous, judgmental, especially when it comes to LGBTQ people. Well, please try to banish those thoughts because being sanctified is the polar opposite to being sanctimonious. To be sanctified is a thing of great beauty. It's a wonderful thing. The simplest way I can explain it is that it means becoming more and more like Jesus, living the life that he modeled for us. So becoming like him in my character, in my speech, in my attitudes, in my behavior, 
cultivating and blossoming with the fruit of the Spirit of Jesus who lives within every true believer. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. See, a person that is being sanctified is not growing in moral superiority. No, they're becoming increasingly humble and amazed at the mercy of God in rescuing them. Because the one thing Jesus certainly is not is sanctimonious. In the New Testament, ordinary people were drawn to Jesus, and especially those most aware of their sexual sin and brokenness. They loved to be around Jesus. Sanctimonious Pharisees and religious leaders of the day didn't get that. They hated Jesus for it because they loved to look down on sexually immoral people. Now, in this letter written to Christians in Thessalonica at a port city, a renowned for sexual promiscuity and immorality, Paul focuses especially on the sanctification of their sex lives, which helps in answering our question. So notice three ways in which sanctification should be increasingly evident in the life of a Christian. First, I'm to avoid sexual immorality. It is God's will, verse 3, that as part of being sanctified, you should avoid sexual immorality. Uh, This is a really important term. Sexual immorality is translated from a single Greek word, porneia. And you don't need to be a Greek scholar to recognize the English word that comes from the Greek word porneia. The clue is quite literally in the word. Uh, The Greek word porneia is hotly debated today, but right throughout church history and still today, it's widely understood by the most reliable scholars and language experts as a generic term for all sexual sin. That is all sex outside of an exclusive marriage between one man and one woman. So it includes marital unfaithfulness, sex before marriage, watching pornography, same-sex practice, prostitution, and so on and so on. Uh, Jesus uses the word himself in Mark 7 verse 21, for example, where he says, from within, out of a person's heart, evil thoughts come. And the first evil thought on Jesus' list is sexual immorality. Exactly the same word in the Greek, porneia, with the exact same meaning. Uh, It appears 26 times in the New Testament, and the related noun pornos, or sexual sinner, appears 10 times, including 1 Corinthians 6 and Ephesians 5, where we're warned very clearly not to be deceived. The unrepentant sexual sinner will not inherit the kingdom of God. And it really breaks my heart to see so many churches today, so many Christians being deceived about sexual sin. Now, sadly, Christians, we often have a reputation for being anti-sex. A number of talks I've heard in church about sex seem to give the impression that the Bible is against sex and portray God as a kind of divine killjoy, as if he creates us as sexual beings, then shouts no from heaven every time we ever think, even think about sex, so that we're left sexually frustrated. But no, God is the creator of sex. Sex is a beautiful, wonderful thing, but only if it's enjoyed within the one context for which God designed it. Don't forget, in the opening chapters of the Bible, Adam and Eve are described as naked, without shame, and making love all in the presence of and with the approval of their creator. We need to remember, though, God lovingly created and perfectly designed sex to be enjoyed in a lifelong, exclusive relationship between one man and one woman. Sex is like divine superglue, cementing the bond between a husband and a wife in a faithful, permanent relationship. And so when we take sex out of that God-given context, when we practice it in relationships for which it was never intended, or if we use it as a commodity to be traded, 
or to control someone, or we drift in and out of sexual relationships, or we see the pursuit of multiple sexual partners as a challenge, or, well, whichever direction we go in, sex immediately loses that seal of divine approval. And, you know, sooner or later, it ceases to become pleasurable. Indeed, it often becomes addictive and harmful, leading us into slavery, shame, and all kinds of misery. And we'll know that there are so many examples of that in the world around us and even in the church. But, you know, this is not because God hates us having sexual pleasure, but rather because God is our perfect creator. He knows exactly what is best for us. He designed sex. He knows, he understands and appreciates its amazing power way more than we do. Productive, positive power to cement and deepen a lifelong marriage relationship and to conceive children. But destructive, devastating power if we pursue sexual pleasure outside of the God-given boundaries of marriage. And a word to those who are younger here, maybe in your teenage years, or, or those who are older but unmarried. Many of you may be hoping and longing for marriage in the future. Can I say, whatever the pressure from your peers, whatever the strength of your own desires, please don't allow one night of passion or a whole string of casual sexual encounters to potentially damage that life of intimacy that God may well be preparing for you in the future. Sex is a wonderful God-given gift, so it really is worth waiting for. It is God's will that you and I should avoid sexual immorality. Now, of course, because of our sinful human nature, most of us don't want to avoid it. We prefer to dance around the edges of it, to flirt with it. We like to light the fire of desire and see how close we can get to the flame without being burned. Paul says avoid it. Elsewhere to the Corinthians, he says flee from it. Run as fast as you possibly can from sexual immorality. To the Ephesians, he says among you there must not be even a hint of it. Well, the second way sanctification should be increasingly evident is that I should learn to control my own body. Verse 4, each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. Now, we need to be under no illusion. This is a high calling. Some might say, well, it's unrealistic, impossible even. Avoiding sexual immorality is one thing, but controlling my own body to the extent that I don't even lust? Is that honestly a realistic demand in our highly sexualized world? Come on, Paul, you might be thinking, get real. That's simply not possible. And anyway, when did a little bit of lust ever harm anyone? Well, if you ever doubt the power of lust and where it can lead, take a look at King David in 2 Samuel 11. A little bit of voyeurism and lust on the roof of his palace. What's the harm? Well, it leads to him committing adultery getting Bathsheba pregnant, murdering her husband, the death of his child, and other devastating consequences. And of course, the Apostle Paul is only reflecting the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember these challenging words? You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body and for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. According to Jesus, this is so important because it concerns our eternal destiny. 
which is why he uses graphic metaphors to urge his followers to take drastic, radical, decisive action to avoid lust. Challenging stuff, isn't it? Particularly when we're bombarded with sexually provocative images in movies, adverts, even walking around a shopping center. And then, of course, there's the ever-present temptation of online pornography, which can be accessed within the privacy of our own homes or on a smartphone, wherever we happen to be at any given moment. Uh, you may have seen the report this week of the study by the Children's Commissioner for England stating that a quarter of 16 to 21-year-olds first saw online pornography while still at primary school. And that by age 13, 50% of children have watched pornography. But as Christians, we're called to be different. And being sanctified means us learning to control our bodies in a way that is holy and honorable. Notice Paul makes the point that passionate lust is a mark of the pagans. That just means unbelievers, people who are not Christian, or those who do not know God, as Paul puts it. That's a real challenge, isn't it? Well, I think this may be a good point to deal with that uh, masturbation question that was raised last week and that I promised to tackle tonight. Uh, the Bible is silent on the act of masturbation. It is not once mentioned in the Bible. And for anyone wondering about Onan in the Old Testament, uh, his sin was to do with the obligation in God's law to continue a uh, brother's family line. But the Bible does have a lot to say about lust, self-control, and idolatry. And masturbation is almost always associated with lustful thoughts and images, either external or in the mind. It often, although not always, becomes an obsession that we can't control or that keeps us from worshipping God or maintaining healthy relationships with others. The Bible calls that an idol. But one of my principles in pastoral care is that I never want to lay on people a demand that God's word doesn't make of us. So if someone were to say to me, as indeed some have over the years, with honesty, integrity and a clear conscience before God that for them personally masturbation is a purely mechanical act not involving pornography or lustful thoughts excluding of course sexual desires for their own spouse which would be perfectly biblical and that it's not compulsive or addictive doesn't interfere with their work and their family responsibilities and that if they were to become convinced in their own mind that it was sinful or that God was calling them to give it up they would do so if all those things are true, I personally would struggle biblically to call that sinful. All that being said, I would still want to stress that God designed sex not for our individual personal gratification, but for cementing a marriage relationship between a husband and a wife, for procreation and for mutual pleasure. And I think if we're honest with ourselves and with each other, we would admit that most masturbation is linked to lustful thoughts and images. Much of it is compulsive, if not addictive and idolatrous. So is there any encouragement for those struggling with it as a sin, or indeed with lust and sexual temptation more generally? Well, wonderfully, yes. There is much encouragement and there is great hope, because I want you to look at what Paul says. Do you notice he doesn't just say, now stop it. He doesn't say that. Look what he says. He says, each of you should learn to control your own body. And built into the very word learn is the idea that we make mistakes. But isn't that how we learn to get better at doing something? I mean, those of you who can swim, how did you learn to swim? Normally by splashing about and taking in chlorine and flapping around and, and eventually you learn to swim. 
It's true in every area of life. You've already heard me say I learned to drive age 17. Then on the day I passed my test, crashed and rode off my dad's car. But that was part of my learning curve to becoming a safer driver. Still make mistakes when I'm driving. Uh, Tim Hensock will tell you that. When I was parking uh, the other night with him in the passenger seat, I, I reversed into someone's garden wall. Very slowly, no damage done. I don't think Tim has whiplash. Um, but you see, I'm still not a perfect driver. I still make mistakes. But I have learned to be way better, I think, than I was at age 17. And so to my Christian brother or sister struggling to exercise sexual self-control, whatever the issue, I want to encourage you to ask God to teach you how to control your body and to give you the power to do it. You do need to be willing and determined to fight. And if you're not at that point yet, well, perhaps you need to start praying by using the words of an old hymn, Lord, please take away the love of sin in me. But, you know, you won't win the battle with sheer willpower. So you do need to believe that it is possible to learn to control your body, but only in God's strength. So pray for that. Pray for it daily. Pray for it hourly. Sometimes pray throughout the day if the battle is especially fierce. I've been praying that for 31 years. And God has been patiently teaching me through a lot of pain, heartache, failure, that to control my body with a good measure of consistency is not an impossible goal. We belong to the God of the impossible, but God is not in the habit of asking his people to do the impossible. Listen to Peter in his second letter, chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. You are equipped to lead a godly life. You are equipped to control your body. Or Titus chapter 2, verse 12. The grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Now, none of us, of course, will exercise perfect self-control over every aspect of our body, sexual or otherwise, this side of heaven. But you know, the Holy Spirit and the grace of God stand willing to be your teachers. And if you sincerely set your heart to it, they will gladly show you how to enjoy the freedom of an increasingly self-controlled life, including, of course, using your body for good, to serve God and others. That's one of the things that's been most helpful for me, learning to, to give out rather than to look what I can get. Uh, you may well benefit from pastoral help and encouragement from others too. And it might be good to ask one or two friends to pray with you or for you, especially when the battle rages strongly. Why not reach out tonight? Don't leave here without asking someone that you're close to, hey, will you pray for me in this battle? So it is God's will that I should be sanctified. In the area of my sex life, this means I should avoid sexual immorality, learn to control my own body, and finally, that I don't take advantage of a Christian brother or sister. At verse 6, in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. Uh, in my late, <coughs> excuse me, in my late 20s, I, I worked as a youth worker in a East London church. And I can't remember how many times uh, someone in the youth group would ask this question whenever we taught on sex and relationships. So how far can we go? In a boyfriend-girlfriend relationship between Christians, where do we draw the line? And my answer was always the same. You're asking the wrong question. You see, if you're a Christian, if you're being transformed to be like Jesus, you need to really be asking, how can I honor God and this other person in and through this relationship? 
How can I avoid sexual immorality? How can I control my body in a way that is holy and honorable? And importantly, how do I ensure that I don't wrong or take advantage of my brother or sister in Christ? You see, if we're asking how far can we go or where do we draw the line, well, it reveals a wrong attitude, an unsanctified attitude. I'm really asking, what can I get away with before God gets angry with me? How close can I get to the fire without getting burned? Because even to lust over a brother or sister is to wrong them. It's to take advantage of them by using their body for my own sexual gratification rather than to honor God and honor them, their whole being, as a precious child of God. If you're in a relationship with someone of the opposite sex who isn't yet your husband or your wife, remember that person may well end up being somebody else's husband or wife in the future if things don't work out between them. So ask for God's help to treat them in a pure and Christ-like way. Uh, You notice there's a warning at the end of verse 6 to those who wrong or take advantage of God's children. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sin. Now for believers, Jesus has wonderfully taken the ultimate eternal punishment for all our sins. But there remains a punishment of discipline. Our perfect Father in heaven lovingly disciplines his children as part of the whole process of sanctifying us. You can read all about that in Hebrews chapter 12. I'd encourage you to have a read. It's really helpful. Uh, We're told there that God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness as part of the process of sanctification. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. But listen to this. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Well, I want to finish on a note of hope and encouragement. I realize this is a hard message to hear. And I know that because it's been a really hard message to prepare and to preach. Some of us, I'm sure, will feel deeply convicted this evening of our sexual sins, present, past. And you may be thinking, well, you have no idea how far I've fallen. You have no idea how much my sex life is out of control. I'm so weak. Is there any way back for me? Will God forgive what I've done? Can I really learn self-control? Well, notice firstly the final words of our reading, the end of verse 8. We belong to a gracious and generous God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. As Callum was teaching us last week, our bodies are no longer our own, but are temples of the Holy Spirit, which is why how we use them sexually is so important. But remember, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of self-control is given to you as your enabler in the struggle. And also, let me say, as your comforter. When you mess up and you fall short, the Lord that we worship is rich in mercy, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. He is so tender. And then if you have a Bible or device open, please just turn or swipe over to 1 Thessalonians 5. I want you to be encouraged by the way that Paul prays for these Thessalonian Christians, themselves struggling with and striving for sexual purity. Chapter 5, verse 23. May God himself The God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And listen to this. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Brothers and sisters, it is God's will that you be sanctified. And ultimately, because our God is faithful, he will make that happen. He will make you and me like Jesus. 
but here's a word of counsel from the worst of sinners in this area. That process will be way easier, much less painful, I dare to say even enjoyable, if I willingly cooperate with the Spirit of God and the grace of God as they seek to teach me and help me to be holy. So I think at this point we're going to move to questions. Thank you so much, Jonathan, for what you have already shared. And thank you so much for all of the questions that you have submitted. Um, we won't be able to get through all of them, um, but we are going to try and get through as many as we can. We have uh, Jonathan, Simeon, and Gerhild here to help us answer some of these questions that we have. Okay, hopefully the questions that we're going to be kind of actively looking at will appear on the screen um, by the magic of technology. Perhaps not. Um, the first question, um, and this is one that I feel may have been answered slightly in what you said, but I think it's helpful still to ask. Are boundaries in acts leading up to sex down to personal conviction, or is there a line of what is appropriate before marriage? Some people, for example, won't hold hands or kiss. Some say anything apart from sex is okay. Okay, so I've partly answered that. Would either of you like to say anything to add to what I said? Yeah, I do think, Jonathan, that you have answered that question by saying it's the wrong kind of question. You said we should rather ask how can we honor the other person, how can we be holy, how can we honor God. So as soon as we ask the question, we are going down the wrong path. But I, there, this question and several of the other questions on, on, on the list is to, all about sex before marriage. And... So I just want to say, I've been married, very happily married for 32 years. If I say anything that feels smug or, or patronizing, please excuse me. It's not, I'm not, this is not what I mean to say, or judgmental, also not that. But I think that we all exposed, and also Jonathan, you hinted at that, to our, the, what the world, what we call outside the church, thinks about sex and sex before marriage and sex in general. And I think we are really... We are so exposed to this that we've internalized it. So we struggle to think in a godly way about it just because it's become part of who we are. And uh, so that's one, I think that's one, one thing that, that non-Christian Christians agree on. Sex is important. We all we agree on that. But uh, when you look at it from, as we, we talk about it from a worldly point of view, Sex is, it's my right, isn't it? That's what we think. It's my right, because that's how I'm made. So it's my right, and that means it's, it's about me. But we, we diminish it a little bit. We say it's so important, but by making it just about me, we diminish it. But when we think about it from a godly point of view, then we see that God says sex is a gift, and it's about another person. It's not about me. It brings in a completely different uh, dimension. You look at it from, the, from an upside-down perspective. And also, it's not just physical in that sense. It's not just the physical act. It's about relationship. That's when you said about the glue that comes in, that glues people together. It's that intimacy that you build with it. And also, in some very mysterious way, it's got a spiritual dimension. I don't know if you want to say about it. You're better equipped 
I say something about that. Um, yeah, should we see what other questions there are first? You said there's quite a lot, did you? Yeah, there are quite a few. We probably spend 10 minutes on each question, so mm. uh, yeah, let's go on. Yeah, fantastic. The next question. I'm nearly 21 and I'm in a committed heterosexual relationship with my girlfriend who I met at uni. Despite being brought up in the faith, I succumb to this sin continually. What should I do? Uh, so succumb to sexual sin, is that what is that? That's my understanding from the question. Okay. Yeah. Um, so uh, we've said tonight that there is, there's forgiveness, there's a fresh start, there's a new beginning, and that's the wonder of being a Christian. Um, we can always have that fresh start. And I think um, asking the question is, is a good thing. You're recognizing that, that this wasn't the right thing to do. Um, I, I'm not sure of the, the situation of the person currently. Are they saying they're still not married or? Uh, they are calling the person couple. in a relationship. In a relationship. Friend. Okay. Yeah, that's fine. So why not begin tonight and say, hey, this has to change. Um, we want to be honoring to God. Um, and, you know, if, if you can't, actually Paul would give one good reason for getting married is if you can't control yourselves, get married. You're old enough to get married. I don't know who you are, so I don't know if I should be giving that advice. It's quite strong, isn't it? But that is actually biblical advice. If you can't control yourselves, go and get married and then show that that is a permanent relationship and God will be delighted with that, I'm sure. And just to add on that, as well as coming to God, um, that's going to be our first kind of response when recognizing sin in our lives. Don't try and deal with this on your own. Um, I mean, firstly, you're going to need to speak to your girlfriend about this and um, to talk about this together. But also seek counsel of others in the church, those who are those who are older, maybe have gone before you, and 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 pray with them and talk to them. Uh, changing our, our kind of uh, uh, sexual habits and background can only come when we're with others and the support of others. Okay, helpful. Great. It's a mind thing, isn't it? Sorry, that sounds again patronising. Mm. I'm sorry, but it really is in the mind. Is when the Bible says that <coughs> we shouldn't conform to the pattern of this world. I better read it, otherwise I'll die, because I don't want to misquote the verse. But it says, uh, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So what we think about things has great power over what we do. But we are not powerless when it comes to what we think about. And we, our mind can be transformed as we are focusing on what Jesus thinks, what he says. More could be said. Okay, um, so this next one. In the Ethiopian Bible, it was open to same-sex relationships. How come in the modern-day Bible it is now condemned? I have never read an Ethiopian Bible, um, so I, I, I'm not in a position to answer that. I don't know if anybody else is. Um, yeah, I mean, I think um, every reliable translation of the Bible um, and as I say, the most um, respected scholars through the ages would say that um, same-sex relationships are clearly forbidden. And we're not basing that on individual verses of the Bible. We're basing that actually on the overall teaching of the Bible on sex and relationships. We don't have to rely on the individual verses. They're there just to back up. Just in case you're not sure, this does include same-sex practice. So, uh, yeah, but I, I'm, maybe you need to go and look at an Ethiopian Bible now. Interesting. Mm. Next question. What is marriage in relation to sex? Is it, uh, oh, the question's disappeared from my screen. Uh, what is marriage in relation to sex? Is it a legal contract or a covenant between the two people and God? Mm. I.e., if worldly circumstances prevent delay, 
prevent or delay legal marriage? Can you be married in God's eyes and have sex? One of my <laughs> married or soon to be married <laughs> co workers wish to take that one. What is it? Uh, it's, it's back on the screen. Uh, while they're looking, uh, let me say that if you look at, um, I mean, the, the, the route for marriage is established in Genesis 2, um, and it's clear there a man will leave his father and mother, so there's a leaving. Um, they will be joined together. There's a, there's a joining, a cleaving, as you speak all in old language. And I think that is very much, it's a public thing. There's a definite um, sense in which a person leaves their own family to join together to make a new family. Um, I think it is a covenant before God, but I think culturally, our culture accepts that the way to be legally married is through uh, you know, a legally binding um, form of words that have to be said. And I see no reason, personally, why we should... Is that okay? Yeah, sorry. I thought I'd <laughs> I'll have a go while you're looking. <laughs> okay. Um, this next one is on a, a similar theme. Um, it says, there is no specific verse in the Bible that forbids sex before marriage. Can you sleep with your to-be wife after you propose and she accepts? You want to take it? Well... Uh, yeah, I think that's what we were, we were thinking, that that was covered a little in the sermon, um, in terms of particularly that phrase, sexual immorality, being quite kind of broad in its scope uh, and what it includes. Um, maybe just a, a little word from a personal perspective. I'm due to be married in 10 weeks, so I, I kind of I know, know the struggle of, mm. of, of waiting, and that, that is legitimate to recognize that. Um, but to encourage you in that kind of, yeah, to, to, to hold out for, for marriage, um, as we said, it's that joining together of people. It's that, that really strong glue. Um, it's dangerous to use it before that. So, yeah, um, that's, I hope, that answers both sides of that question. Yeah, the porn air word covers it. Sex outside of marriage. One more that might be our final one. We'll, we'll have to check on timing. How do you overcome addiction to pornography? Uh, well, I've, I've tried to touch on that a little bit. Um, I think, number one, believe that it is possible with God's help to overcome an addiction. God is in the business of setting people free. Jesus said, uh, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. So believe that it's possible, because it is possible. Um, uh, understand that you won't do that in your own strength. You do need the help of God's Holy Spirit. You need the grace of God to teach you. Um, and actually, you probably won't overcome on your own. So reach out to others, ask people to pray with you, for you. Uh, depending how severe the addiction is, you may actually really benefit from uh, programs that are out there, cause quite good programs that are out there to help people through these addictions. You might um, benefit from some pastoral input and care as well. But believe that it's possible. It is not impossible. And there is great, great liberty and joy that comes through um, overcoming. Now, you know, I'm, I say this, and I've, I've just had a battle this week of temptations being thrown at me from every direction, and I expect it will be even worse probably next week. Uh, I know that I always have to be watchful and careful because it can return at any time, um, but God gives us the resources to say no, to resist, all kinds of scriptures that are there. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, that probably isn't enough in a couple of minutes, but do, do reach out for help. Really, and really to underline that fact, like 
the proportion of people in this room who suffer with a porn addiction is, is high because that's what the stats show us. People do struggle with porn addiction. You're not alone in this. You're not alone in the church in this. There are groups in the church who support and, and will go along with you with this. Don't do this alone, but freedom is possible. And, and maybe that, the first step is finding, I guess, someone to, to talk to about this. Um, I know that there are, there's going to be kind of the elders and pressing around. If you can find someone to talk to there, do. But maybe there'll be someone you know who is your uh, prayer partner, something like that. Reach out, share. Don't do this alone. Um, yeah. Okay, we do have time for one more. And I think this is um, yeah, quite a, maybe quite a big one. Um, so Jesus died for our sins. So what does it mean when the passages state he will punish those who are sexually immoral? Uh, okay, yeah, so I, I kind of touched on that. Um, just repeat that there are two kinds of punishment in the Bible. So there is punishment as in eternal punishment for those who are unrepentant of sexual sin or, or other sin indeed, greed, idolatry. Um, but there is a punishment of discipline. Uh, God is a loving, perfect, heavenly father and he knows how to discipline his children. I, I can look back on my life and see actually some seasons where I think, yeah, this is partly God is disciplining me. God is actually wanting to sanctify me and to teach me uh, to put away certain things. And, and I, you know, the writer of Hebrews says those times are not pleasant at the time. They're painful, but they actually can lead to a harvest of righteousness and peace. So if I'm genuinely trusting in Jesus then he has died and taken the punishment on himself for all of my sins, past, present, and future. Um, but we are called, if we're trusting in Jesus, to turn away from sin. So part of the evidence that I am really trusting in Jesus is that I will turn away from sin. But even as a Christian, if I fall and I fail and I mess up, uh, God is gracious, but he also will discipline us he, because he knows that's what we need. To, and it's not done in a harsh way. It's not done in a mean way. It says he disciplines us as the perfect father. He knows exactly what it takes. He knows exactly what it takes with me to bring me back into line in those times I've won. And I look back and I think, oh, Lord, you could have, you could have done so much more. But actually, you knew just the measure that it would take to bring me back to you in those uh, periods of, of wandering in, in lots of different ways in my life. Okay. There have been several questions that hinted at difficult um, experiences with abuse, mm. yeah. and we just find that we probably cannot help helpfully answer them from the stage. Mm. But we do want to again encourage you, if that is you, to reach out and either talk to one of us mm. or ask us to put you in touch with someone. Thank you. And can I just say one final thing? If you've not had your question answered and you feel comfortable coming to talk to me, I'd be happy, I'll be around the front. Um, if you've not had a question answer you would like, I'm not gonna be rushing off. Uh, I'd be more than happy to take uh, more questions once the service is finished. I, can't, I guess we've got to draw to a close probably soon to let people go, but um, yeah, come and talk to me if you'd like to about anything that you've not had answered. Okay, thank you, Jonathan, Simeon, Gerhild.